1: Public health officials are facing a choice about whose lives deserve the most protection. And at the center of their dilemma is one of the most controversial consumer products on the market, the Juul e-cigarette. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knutson. It's Wednesday, August 7th. Today on the show, the question facing policymakers in the United States. Should we use Juul to help adult smokers quit cigarettes? Or do we ban e-cigarettes altogether to stop teens from ever getting hooked on nicotine?
0: Public health experts are really debating this very fiercely at the moment. There are some who feel like as you restrict access in stores to the extent that an adult cigarette smoker can't find it in their local gas station, then you're dooming millions of cigarette smokers to uh, a terrible death.
1: Jennifer Maloney covers the tobacco industry at The Wall Street Journal.
0: But there are others who feel just as strongly that no kid should ever have the opportunity to start vaping because you don't want to hook them on nicotine. And it's become an issue that parents and and teachers, school districts, lawmakers are really sort of fiercely passionate about, too.
1: Who invented Juul? Or like, who invented the e-cigarette?
0: The e-cigarette was invented many years ago, actually, but it didn't become widely used until recently, because most e-cigarettes on the market previously didn't deliver nicotine in a way that was satisfying to people who used cigarettes. Juul was a game changer because they came on the market and they delivered nicotine in a way that people found satisfying. It comes in several flavors, including mint, mint, Mango. Those are two of the most popular ones. There are various tobacco flavors. There are sort of fruitier ones like one that used to be called creme brulee, which is now called creme.
1: As vaping started to catch on, the Food and Drug Administration actually embraced it. It rolled out a plan to make it as easy as possible for cigarette smokers to transition to e-cigs.
0: A cigarette is the most harmful way you can consume nicotine. Public health officials say that they want adult cigarette smokers to switch to e-cigarettes or chewing tobacco or the nicotine patch or the gum, anything but cigarettes. So in order to get adults to switch, you got to make alternatives available.
1: What the FDA didn't realize at the time is that Juul's sweet and fruity e-cigarettes were also attractive to kids, If you're a kid, vaping probably isn't an alternative to smoking. It's a new unhealthy habit. Because vapes might not have cancer-causing smoke particles, but they still have nicotine.
0: Nicotine can rewire a young person's brain and make that kid more susceptible to other types of addiction. There's also things about e-cigarettes that we don't know yet. So the companies don't disclose other ingredients, so we don't know everything that's in there
1: Juul's founders say their mission was to get smokers off cigarettes, not to get kids hooked. But everyone, from parents to teachers to state attorneys general, are skeptical. A lot of concerns go back to the way that Juul marketed itself in the early days of the brand. The ads showed grinning young people in crop tops, bright colors, and the cool kinds of poses you saw in iconic billboard ads for cigarette companies like Marlboro. And then there was its outreach effort.
0: They actually worked on an anti-vaping program that they were presenting inside schools. And they had to cancel that soon after they launched it because there was intense criticism. This is something that Big Tobacco used to do to try to recruit kids is going to schools with anti-smoking campaigns sort of branded with, you know, cigarette brand X.
1: So basically going to schools and say, don't smoke, kids. Yeah. But then also the subtext of that for kids, the way they see it is, Oh, smoking is cool. Yeah. Jules e-cigarettes also look really different from other vapes. They're about the same size as a USB stick. And when you exhale, there's almost no visible vapor, all of which made it easy for kids to sneak them into class.
0: We've heard anecdotes of teachers standing in bathrooms and monitoring and, like, the doors being taken off of bathrooms to prevent kids from vaping. It's kind of ironic because their stated mission was to help millions of cigarette smokers get off of cigarettes onto an alternative. And they framed themselves as sort of the disruptor of big tobacco. And now they are widely seen as this uh, evil company that has, you know, intentionally hooked a bunch of kids on nicotine. They have had to deal with a public relations nightmare...
1: All that anecdotal evidence about teens vaping turned into hard data in 2018 when the Centers for Disease Control released data that confirmed vaping had become a craze among teenagers. This wasn't a case of teens transitioning to something safer than cigarettes. Teens smoking had already been dropping. These were kids who had never smoked at all.
2: We were immediately shocked by it.
1: This is Scott Gottlieb, the man who had been the FDA commissioner when his organization had originally encouraged vaping.
2: It was very apparent to us at that point that we were going to have to take action to try to uh, intervene to mitigate what we think rightly perceived as an epidemic. I made some immediate phone calls to brief in people who I knew I was going to need their support to take action.
1: The FDA launched an investigation into Juul to see if it had been intentionally marketing to teens. It also proposed new restrictions on flavored e-cigarette sales, which haven't been implemented yet. In response to the FDA's change of heart about vaping, Juul made some changes of its own. They added age verification steps to their online store and pulled some of their most popular flavors from shelves.
0: they shut down most of their social media presence in the US. They've asked platforms like Instagram to take down pictures that kids post of themselves and their friends vaping.
1: But then in December of last year, Juul got a powerful new investor. One of the world's largest cigarette makers, Altria, bought a 35% stake. After the Altria investment, it became harder for Juul to make the case that it was an upstart trying to disrupt big tobacco. Juul was part of Altria's strategy for the future.
0: They are. They recognize that fewer and fewer people are smoking cigarettes and that they're going to have to pivot to the future in order to survive as a company. So when Juul exploded and and everybody started vaping, all of a sudden their core revenue stream was called into question. Altrea doesn't control the company, but they're helping Juul in a number of ways. They're helping them with their sales and distribution, so getting into more stores. They're helping them with their FDA applications. And they're actually putting coupons for Juul inside cigarette packs. They're actually encouraging their own cigarette customers to switch over to Juul.
1: Wow. So it sounds like they're really staking their future as a tobacco company on e-cigarettes.
0: They invested in Juul, and now they're going all-in on Juul.
1: Juul is now worth $38 billion. That's more than Airbnb and even more than Ford Motor Company. Now, lawmakers have set their sights on Juul. In Connecticut and Massachusetts, state attorneys general are investigating its marketing practices, and the city of San Francisco passed a total ban on vaping products, not just Juul. Good morning. Last month, Jules co founder, James Monzies, defended his company in front of Congress, where lawmakers are also investigating.
2: And we are seeing that these tools actually
1: work. Mm -hmm. We don't want any underage consumers using this product. We need to work together to make sure that no underage consumers use this product. It is terrible for our business, it is terrible for public health, it is terrible for our reputation. None of this is good stuff. We want to get on to the, to the business
2: of eliminating cigarettes and saving lives.
1: Juul is also supporting legislation that would raise the legal age to buy tobacco to 21. But Scott Gottlieb, who stepped down as FDA commissioner in April, says that more regulatory action needs to come before it's too late.
2: I felt a great deal of worry about what was underway. You know, the fact that we hadn't detected it sooner and had been formulating policy in the absence of good information about trends that were underway with the youth use. I was worried about the ability to intervene quickly enough because I think one of the lessons from the opioid epidemic was uh, no matter what we did to intervene, the epidemic was always one step ahead of the regulatory action. We were always sort of one step behind that exploding epidemic. And I didn't want to be in a similar circumstance.
1: The FDA still has one big move left, and it could make this move at any time.
0: They sort of hold this trump card, which is, we could take all of you off the market tomorrow. All of the e-cigarettes that were on the market as of 2016 have remained on the market at the FDA's discretion. So that's the leverage that the FDA has over all the e-cigarette makers at the moment.
1: Juul says its marketing now only features people over the age of 35— It also says its student presentations were intended to educate youth on the dangers of nicotine addiction. It ended them after the purpose was, quote, clearly misconstrued. In the fall, fresh data will be released on youth vaping. And what those numbers say could determine what happens next.
0: And that is really going to be a moment of reflection and soul-searching, right? That's when we might see discussions about, should we ban e-cigarettes altogether? Or not, depending on what the numbers look like. So when these numbers come out showing how many kids are vaping, that's really going to be kind of a moment of truth.
1: After the break, a mystery in the Apple App Store.
0: This episode is brought to you by Workday.
1: Welcome back. Apple's App Store is an increasingly large business. Last year, Apple made an estimated $14 billion in revenue from people buying apps through it. And that number is expected to keep growing. But there's something unique about the App Store. Apple isn't just running the marketplace. It's also competing in it. Trip Mickle covers Apple for The Wall Street Journal. And recently, he got a tip from an app maker.
2: I was on the phone with uh, a developer who I talk to often, and he just mentioned, hey, have you ever looked at search rankings and seen where Apple apps surface if you search in kind of a broad category around that Apple app that they compete in? I said, no, I haven't really looked at it. And we started looking at it together while we were on the phone. And it, it didn't really matter which, which category you looked at, whether it was like movies, for example, or news. Apple apps rose to the top almost all the time. Trip decided to investigate more
1: deeply. Apple makes about 80 of its own apps. And Trip wanted to see just how often they were appearing first in search results.
2: The central question we were looking to answer was, do Apple apps surface the top rankings if you do a broad general search term? And does that, in essence, give it some kind of edge over competitors in a category? So how did you set up a test? I worked with a colleague of mine, Abigail Somerville, and we pulled six iPhones, one from each of the past five years. We sat down and we used a a system called AppTweak to surface some keywords that were recommended to developers to use to get their apps to surface in these broad categories.
1: A broad category could be something like news or maps. So in June, Trip and Abigail started going through dozens of keywords to see what results came up. And sure enough, they found that Apple was overwhelmingly appearing first in the categories where it made its own app. Give me an example of the kind of results that you were seeing.
2: There are some searches you can do, like Maps, where you'll have three Apple apps pop up before you get to a fourth competitive app that might be popular, for example, Google Maps. Uh, But if you do a search for Maps, we got Apple Maps, we got Find My iPhone, and then we got uh, an app called Indoor Survey that surfaced as well. And Indoor Survey is really just a utility tool for say, airports and malls to be able to show where stores and restaurants are indoors. And so it's, it's really just a, a, a business-to-business app. And it, it only has like a three nine rating or something like that. And, uh, you know, that compares with 2 million-plus customer reviews for Google Maps, which is really, really popular. Did that surprise you? It surprised me, but in talking with some developers, it was no surprise. And one of the things that interested me in the conversations with developers, Ryan, was particularly developers overseas. Um, You know, Apple's got developers all over the world. And if you talk to developers in international markets, they would essentially say, yeah, of course Apple comes up first. If you owned and controlled the system, wouldn't you come up first, too? Of course,
1: you could make the argument that Apple owns the store, and so, yeah, it's going to display its own apps higher up. But that's not what Apple says it's doing. Tripp asked Apple to comment on how it ranks apps in
2: search results. Apple's response was they work to ensure that the app store is fair to everyone who participates in it, and they do not favor themselves. I mean, that, that was their number one... Uh, point that they tried to make. And then as they try to explain and answer the question, well, why do your apps surface often as number one, they said that Apple customers have a very strong connection to their apps. They often search for their apps to find their apps in the app store. And that that customer usage was the primary reason that it, it showed up high, and that Apple apps showed up high in search results.
1: Apple won't reveal its search formula, but the company did tell Trip some of the top factors it considers. And one of them is customer ratings and reviews. And that's where Apple apps seem to play by a different set of rules.
2: The one thing that we could never quite get comfortable with is why do something on the order of 44 Apple apps? Not have star ratings and are shielded from customer review.
1: They're shielded from customer
2: reviews. Yeah. For example, open up the podcast app. Can you can you review that right now? I mean, give it a try. Let's see. Pulling up my iPhone right now. I assume I know what the answer is. That uh, yeah, no ratings. It says for the Apple Podcast app. And here's the fascinating thing about that, is up until last September, when that became what is considered a pre-installed app, it's, it's bundled with the operating system, it, it had a 1.7 rating from customers. And so it was a pretty, pretty low rating. So Apple says
1: user ratings and reviews influence where apps rank in search. But several of its own apps aren't open to being rated and reviewed. Why do you think Apple doesn't let users
2: review its own apps? Apple says that for those apps that are pre-installed on the iPhone, there were never ratings or reviews for them. So even as it adds more pre-installed apps, those apps don't have ratings and reviews. It's just kind of like it seems to be a policy thing for them. No ratings or reviews. And that's why you had ratings for, like, Apple Books and podcasts at one point in time, and you don't now, because those are pre-installed apps. And that's the one thing that we went back and forth with Apple on extensively. And that's just an open question as to why there are different rules for Apple's apps than there are for third-party apps.
1: Tripp's findings come at a time when several of the big tech companies are facing scrutiny from regulators in Europe and the U.S., In July, the Department of Justice opened an antitrust review of the large tech companies. The review is focused on the way platforms like the App Store are run and whether they could be hurting competition. How should people think about this finding of yours that Apple is
2: favoring some of its own apps in search results? From an antitrust perspective, the biggest the biggest thundercloud out there for Apple, if you think about it, is the App Store. I mean, that that would be the place that you could see a case being made that there are antitrust concerns. And that is largely because there's so much revenue generated on the App Store relative to the broader sales of apps across mobile devices through Google Play and other stores. And that's also because... Um, The App Store is the only way you can deliver an app to an iPhone. And there are 900 million iPhones in the world and 100 million in the U.S. I think this just fits into the macro issue that everyone's concerned about when it comes to big tech companies and how they operate their platforms. We had previously looked at this when it came to Amazon and how Amazon favored its Amazon Basics batteries and searches and would have those pop up uh, on its platform. We've looked at that with Google and Apple doesn't operate a similar platform to those other two, but it does have this huge sales platform in the App Store. And when you look at it, its apps come up before competitors. And that's, that's an advantage. It's an advantage that it enjoys that its competitors don't. And it raises real questions about what that might mean for its business and for those around it.
1: For now, the App Store is continuing to make money for Apple. Last week, when Apple reported quarterly earnings, the company said sales from services were up 13%. About a third of that comes from the App Store. That's all for today, Wednesday, August 7th. We'll see you Friday.